Hello everyone and welcome once again to the podcast, A Light Unto My Path. I am your host, uh, Howard Sides. Today we're going to uh, start on the next letter. Uh, we've been going through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And this is the third letter, uh, the letter to the church at Pergamos. Letter to the church at Pergamos. And if you want to turn into the scripture, Revelation chapter number 2. And this letter is covered in verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And today we'll read the scripture and then I'll give you a little bit of background on the city itself and some of the history and the culture and the uh, politics and religion, that sort of thing. And then we'll get into the uh, letter itself as it pertains to the church. So if you will, uh, we'll flip to the verses here and read them. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he that uh, he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So there's the passage. And obviously the letter takes on a little more serious tone than the first two. Uh, and he mentions there in verse 14 that he has a few things against them. Okay, so let's get into uh, some of the background of Pergamos here and how it relates to uh, what this letter is saying to the church there and what it says to us. Okay, uh, as far as the history of the church, uh, the location. Uh, the ancient city is located about 15 miles from the sea and is 50 miles north of Smyrna. So if you'll remember, we talked about Ephesus first, then Smyrna, and now we're talking about Pergamos. And we've been going uh, northward, almost in a straight line along the coast, uh, what you would think is the Mediterranean Sea. Today it's the Aegean Sea to the north part there. Uh, so we've been kind of going northward. Per Pergamos is further north away from Smyrna than Smyrna is from Ephesus. So it's a little bit further route, being 50 miles moving north. Uh, Pergamos, as the seven churches are located, is the most northern church. So we've been kind of going in a straight line up. And, and just as a reference, the next... Uh, four churches will be going back towards the southeast. So we've made kind of like a V uh, northward, and, and then we'll be going back uh, 
more towards the southeast with Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea being the remaining churches. Uh, in contrast to uh, Ephesus and Smyrna, there are no major routes or roads that lead to this city. Uh, going to Pergamos, uh, you would not go there to go somewhere else. It's, it's like the end road. If, if, if you went to uh, Pergamos, you're going to Pergamos. So it's kind of that way. Now, the city itself sat on a tall cone-shaped cone mount uh, that rose 1,300 feet above the wide valley of the river uh, Caicus, which C-A-I-C-U-S, the river Caicus. Uh, Sir William Ramsey described it as, and I quote, Beyond all other cities of Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. The rocky hill on which it stands is so huge and dominates the broad plain of the Caicus, so proudly and so boldly. Uh, so in kind of reference, it would be a uh, definition of what we would call a city on a hill, a big hill as it is. Uh, from the top of, uh, from where you are in the city, you could see the Aegean Sea and uh, its location currently is, is where the city of Bergama is. Well, Bergama sits in the valley below, but it, it's, it's, associated with what we know as Pergamos. As far as the beginning of the city, the city was settled as early as the 8th century BC. That's 700 BC era. Uh, when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was split four ways. We've mentioned that before. Uh, and Pergamos became the capital of the Seleucid kingdom, S-E-L-E-U-C-I-D, one of the four kings that took over. Uh, in 133 BC, King Attalus III died and willed his dominions to Rome. Rome formed the province of Asia and made Pergamos her capital. Her reign as the capital city lasted more than 400 years through the time when the letter was written to her church. So as the letter was written, uh, she was the capital of the province of Asia and they were obviously under Roman rule. And now we get to the origin of her name, uh, and her name has two forms. There's Pergamum, P-E-R-G-A-M-U-M, and then there's Pergamos, P-E-R-G-A-M-O-S. And in the Bible, it calls it Pergamos, uh, but Pergamum was the neuter form of the name, and Pergamos was the feminine form of the name. And the letter to uh, the letters we have it here in Revelation is to uh, Christ's church, which is his bride. So it takes the feminine form, which fits best. Now, the word parchment that we know of today is derived from the word Pergamum. Uh, for centuries, ancient rolls were written on papyrus. Uh, it was a reed-like plant from the banks of the Nile River in Egypt. And the outer skin would be removed, and the inner pulp was cut into little strips. These little strips were then soaked in water to make them elastic, to you know, stretch them out and that sort of thing. And then they were dried in a crisscross pattern. Uh, this crisscross pattern pulp is pressed out by a large round stone to remove all the water, and then it would be dried uh, in the sun for several days. Uh, then the sheets would be polished and glued together to make 
scrolls. So you'd make like a crisscross pattern and you'd end up with like a little sheet and then the sheets would be glued together to make a, a, a long stream of uh, papyra on a roll. And, and so that's how you'd get the scrolls and that sort of thing. That, that's where it started. Uh, and that's where you get the word parchment from. Now, in the 3rd century B.C., King Eumenes of Pergamos wanted his library to overtake Alexandria's as a supreme library. And to get the ball rolling, he persuaded a man by the name of Aristophanes of Byzantium, uh, who happened to be the chief librarian of Alexandria, uh, he persuaded this guy to move to Pergamos to get this thing started. Uh, King Ptolemy of Egypt heard about this and imprisoned Aristophanes to keep him from leaving. King Ptolemy also, in an act of retaliation, stopped the export of papyrus, uh, papyrus to Pergamos. So if you can't write any books, then you can increase the size of the library. Uh, faced with an emergency, the scholars of Pergamos invented parchment or vellum, V-E-L-L-U-M, which is made of the skin of animals. Uh, turns out parchment is much better writing material, and although it took a few centuries to do so, it ousted papyri altogether as the principal writing material. So when first invented, this parchment was called <laughs> uh, He Pergamene Charta, or the Pergamene Sheet. It is believed that Mark Anthony gave the contents of the library to Alexandria as a wedding present to Cleopatra. All records were destroyed by the invading armies of the Turkish Muslims in the 600, uh, 600s A.D. Uh, so there's a little bit of the history of her name and, and how it uh, actually became something of a word we use today. Now, as far as her economics are concerned, while there is little to no record stating the economical situation of this city, it is known that Pergamos was a very wealthy city based on her position as the capital city of Asia, Rome support, and her multiple temples to various elements of society, including education, emperor worship, and idolatry. And as we come to her culture, uh, Pergamos had no commercial enterprise to match Ephesus or Smyrna by any means. Uh, as we mentioned below, uh, uh, before, Pergamos was not connected to any great roads, as a matter of fact, the only access to the Aegean Sea was a 12 to 15 mile upriver current by way of the Caicos River. But her culture far surpassed Ephesus and Smyrna. Uh, it was based on several things. One was her longstanding reign as the capital city of Asia, which was then based on three factors. First of all, uh, the education aspect of it, the center of culture. And it was the library, which we mentioned before. It was the second largest library behind the Library of Alexandria. Her library contained more than 200,000 parchment rolls. That's the third, uh, the third largest was Ephesus, which only contained 3,000. So she by a large margin passed the amount that Ephesus had, 3,000 to 200,000. Uh, then also by inventing the Pergamene paper, the codex-type book, a paged book, became the convenient form of collection. Stone benches separated the volumes from the public's reach. Library attendants were used. So that's how, you know, currently when you go to the library, some books you can reach, but some of them of higher value are behind a, a desk or whatever, and you'd have to have a library assistant uh, get them for you. Well, that's how the library at Pergamos was set up in that way. 
secondly, uh, in the realm of religion, uh, it, Pergamos was the center of religious shrines. The citizens of Pergamos believed they were the custodians of the Greek way of life and worship. Now, this idea was prominent in their construction of temples. The Acropolis of Pergamos was uh, even designed similar to the layout of Athens. And I have a, I know you can't see it, but I have a, a picture. You can get it off of the internet, but it's the Acropolis of Pergamos. Uh, and it's called, uh, uh, or the uh, Acropolis, the name in Greek is comes from the word akros, meaning highest or topmost, and polis, being city, the highest or topmost city. Um, there, as you look at it, as you come up to this, you have the Ionic Altar, which is a long building. Uh, you have the Temple of Dionysus. Uh, then there's the major theater, of course, and then there's the temple of Trajan, who was an emperor. Uh, there's a queen's garden. Then there's the barracks, which would house the uh, soldiers that stayed there. Uh, directly to the back is the library, which we've mentioned before. Uh, coming back to the right is the temple of Athena, uh, an altar of Zeus, and then what's called the upper agora, uh, which I think we mentioned that in, in the letter to Smyrna, an agora uh, it's basically like a hotel. It has an open court area uh, for all the visitors and the guests to sit in. All right. Um, <clears throat> Pergamos built the first temple in that area and was the only one for quite a while in honor of goddess Roma and Augustus, who was the first emperor. And remember, as a subject of Rome, uh, they had to get permission to build these temples before you couldn't just erect a temple you had to get the permission first but anyway they built the first one and it was the only one for quite a while uh later a second temple was built in honor of trajan i'll mention that in the chart mega and then a third in honor of severus uh following emperor pergamos also had the distinction of being the first non-roman city to have a temple dedicated to state worship the first uh to have two, and even the first to have three. The Augustan temple was printed on their coins up to the time of Trajan. The doors are shown open, indicating that the reigning emperor was crowned by the province or accepted as their ruler. And I found a couple of uh, pictures of uh, Pergamon coins, I guess is right, Pergamon, Pergamonian coins, Pergamon pergamine coins um one of the first one was a coin of augustus being crowned uh by demos uh and then another coin uh depicts what i was just talking about that temple the august uh the augustan temple and depicted with the doors open which is a symbol of them accepting them as as the ruler now the uh, augustan temple is the oldest temple in all of asia uh pergamus was especially known for two famous temples, uh, the first one being the Temple of Zeus, uh, erected in honor of King Attalus's great victory over the invading Gauls in 240 BC, and then the other temple was the Temple of Asclepios, and we'll talk about those a little bit later, uh, the closest thing to a hospital in that day, and we'll explain why that is. Uh, the third area of their culture uh, was the center of Roman administration, which depicted the government side of it. And this was the core of Caesar worship. Once a year, everyone in the empire had to appear before the magistrates to burn 
a pinch of incense to the Godhead of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you remember, that's where a bunch of this uh, persecution took place was in the fact that a lot of these people refused to do that because to say that Caesar was Lord was to take away from the fact that Christ was actually Lord. So that's uh, a lot of people would refuse to do that. And I'm sure they kept intricate records of who appeared and who did not. Okay, um, the uh, Acropolis, uh, we talked about that a minute ago. The name itself comes from Akros, being the highest or topmost, and Polis being the city. It was situated about 1,300 feet high on a hill. Again, it was modeled after this, uh, the city of Athens in Greece, and they laid it out as an honor. Remember, they, they thought that they were the keepers of the Greek uh, way of worship and, and mythology and that sort of thing, so you know they would want it to look like uh, Athens, of course. It was the furthest outpost of Greek civilization. Beyond it were the wild territories of the Celts. So it was the edge of what they would consider to be uh, uh, civilization. Okay, uh, It consisted of a number of buildings, which uh, we talked about that, but I'll go over those again. Uh, they had uh, royal palaces, which of course were the home of the rulers, uh, built by Eumenes and then for Attalus, who were the kings there. Uh, they also had temples uh, to, uh, to Trajan, Athena, Zeus, which had an altar in it. Uh, then, of course, there was the library and then the theater as well. Then, uh, second of all, there's the building called the Agora, which was that uh, I talked about. It was a, like a hotel or a marketplace or public square, uh, the opening place in the middle. It uh, also contained a gymnasium. It contained a temple of Demeter a sanctuary of Hera, uh, the actual house of Attalus, who was the former king, and then the gate of Eumenes, which was a former king. And he built those, of course, in honor of the ruling party at the time. So that's um, the structures there. Uh, there's also the Asclepion. Uh, this was a sanctuary dedicated to the god of medicine, Asclepius. Within the structure was the actual temple to Asclepion, another library, and a small theater of its own. While the actual temple was built between 300 to 400 B.C., excavations have shown that the area of the sanctuary was used long before that. Uh, according to writings from a man named Pausanias, that's spelled P-A-U-S-A-N-I-A-S. According to the writings of Pausanias, the temple was built around natural hot springs, whose waters were believed to have healing effects. And there was a well in the center of the sanctuary. And on a, a side note of that, that, that's even believed today that, that hot springs have natural healing uh, tendencies. So, you know, it wasn't so far-fetched as a rumor or something not proven that, uh, you know, it's still doing, being done today. Now, during the reign of Emperor Hadrian, which was from 117 to 138 A.D., many businesses were built around the temple with streets leading to the doors. Uh, So-called patients would stay in the rooms around the sanctuary where they would have dreams from Asclepios in which he would give them their prognosis. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the actual temple itself. Uh, it's kind of an overview sort of thing. Uh, there's also something called the Red Basilica. 
the red basilica. And you can actually look that up online. There, there's a great picture of it. Uh, it's a towering building. I uh, don't really know how tall it is, but, but it's very old. It's still standing today. And it's actually the site of the Church of Pergamos. Uh, the Red Basilica was constructed as a great temple to the Egyptian gods Isis and Osiris. And being as such, it consisted of a main building with two round towers uh, that stuck up above them, which obviously represented the two Egyptian gods. And then later on, it became the home of the Christian church. And you think, wow, and you know, that doesn't fit right. But you had to remember at that time, a lot of times they would use uh, current or existing structures uh, because you couldn't really uh, have the money to build your own structure. So that, that's how that happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, now in the area of politics, uh, King Eumenes uh, from 263 to 241 BC, he built the city into a huge metropolis through large construction, starting with the Acropolis area and then the Agoran section. Uh, through King Attalus, who came later, that's 241 to 197 BC, Pergamos became strong enough to break away from foreign rule through a very famous battle against the Gauls, where he drove them from the west coast, celebrated with the construction of the temple to Zeus. Later, King Attalus would earn the respect of Rome, and then he would end up turning all power over to Rome when he died, uh, and he left that order in his will. As far as religion goes, uh, there are three main sources of religious worship. First, there is Zeus, worshipped as the Savior, Asclepios, worshipped as the Healer, and Caesar, worshipped as the Lord. Or, or, okay, uh, so first of all, Zeus as a Savior, that was in reference to protection. Uh, this was built by King Eumenes from 166 to 156 B.C., so it took about 10 years to build that. Uh, it was symbolic of the great war against the Gauls, where they gained their independence under King Adelid. Actual carvings display what's called a gigantomachy. Uh, that's spelled G-I-G-A-N-T-O-M-A-C-H-Y. <laughs> Actual carvings display a gigantomachy, which is basically a war between the Olympian gods and giants, hence the name gigantomachy. Uh, it is 117 feet wide by 110 feet deep, and the steps of it alone are 66 feet wide. So, of course, that was a pretty big structure there. Uh, the upper section is 20 feet high. Uh, there's a 9-foot tall frieze or a decorative band around the altar, which is 370 feet long and is made of over 100 individual panels. The individual panels are made of Proconesian marble from the island of Procom... Pro yeah, okay. Procomus... <laughs> Procomesis. All right, that's P-R-O-C-O-M-M-E-S-U-S. -E -S. Some of these names are uh, hard to pronounce. Uh, but anyway, individual panels are made of Proconin Proconesian marble from the island of Procom Procomesis, uh, which is by the Sea of Marmara to the north. Uh, the rest of the base and altar frieze is made of Lesbos Moria marble, which is darker, 
uh, that was a lo an area located to the northwest in the Aegean Sea. Okay, so that is the temple to Zeus. Um, now, uh, the part, the second part of that is to uh, Asclepios, who is worshipped as the healer or the physician. So Zeus was considered the savior for protection. Asclepios, as the healer, was uh, the physician. Okay, now in this worship of uh, Asclepius as the healer, uh, there's an interesting aspect of this uh, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the biblical history, back in Genesis chapter 10. And we're, I'm going to read from that if you want to uh, turn over there with me, Genesis chapter 10. And we learn about an individual who started a form of worship, which you may be surprised to know uh, is actually still practiced today. And, and even some major churches uh, contain symbols and uh, forms of the worship, which, which are uh, under another name, but it had its origination and its start right here in Genesis chapter 10. We're, let's read verses uh, 8 through 12. Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. I'll go ahead and warn you now to remember that name, the, in the land of Shinar. That's going to come up continually as we go through our study in the book of Revelation. There, there's a very hard key to that, a connection to that, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah, and reason between Nineveh and Calah. The same is a great city. In other words, it wasn't just a little establishment or an outpost. It was a great city. So Nimrod here, whose name means rebel, in the spirit of defiance against God, builds himself an army, and in verse 11 he attacks this place, Ashur where it says, out of that land went forth Ashur and builded Nineveh. So they pushed him out. Uh, Ashur was the son of Shem. And it drove them, drove them out of their own territory. So he was forced out. Now, if you flip over a little bit later in chapter 11, uh, read verse 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain, where? In the land of Shinar. There that phrase that is again. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So we see that Nimrod establishes this kingdom. And then in verse 3, uh, that phrase, they said one to another. And that would indicate that Nimrod could have started the conversation. Obviously, he had big plans if he built this place. So he kind of wanted to get his plan started. So thus the conversation started. Verse 4 shows their pride in the statements of let us. And they use that phrase, let us, uh, twice there uh, in verse 3 once. So they used it actually three times. Uh, the towers of verse 4 are what are called ziggurats or pyramid-shaped towers built for worshiping pagan deities. Now, who else do you know builds pyramid-shaped towers to worship anything other than God, such as pharaohs or gods? Well, that would be the Egyptians, and that's where they got that from. Uh, the phrase, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth, there in the end of verse 4. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, as a reason, that's why they built this, and, and, and their excuse for doing it was so that they wouldn't be scattered across the face of the earth. But it ends up being their own uh, judgment which is carried out at the end of verse 9. That's what God did anyway. And as a matter of fact, that's what God had ordered him to do was to spread across the earth. You know, when Noah came forth out of the ark and he told the boys, you know, to be uh, fruitful, multiply, and to replenish the earth, which was to spread, spread across the earth. He didn't want them in one single place. He wanted them to spread out. That's why he built the whole earth. Uh, now, the word uh, in verse 9, Babel, Babel is a compound word of the word balal, B-A-L-A-L, which is the Hebrew word for to confuse. And it becomes the word for Baal. So you start with balal, B-A-L-A-L, which means to confuse. You come up with the word Babel, and then you come up with the word for the god of it, which is Baal. So Nimrod begins the worship of what are called mysteries, or dark magic, which becomes the cult of the Magians. The Magian high priest was called the chief bridge builder, meaning the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan. In Latin, this phrase is Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. If that's a title that sounds somewhat familiar, if you know anything of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic religion, that is the title used by the Pope today. Pontifus Maximus means the chief bridge builder. And that title came from this group of Magians. That was the Magian high priest title. This represented the mother-son worship that Nimrod and his wife Sumerimus started. Later, Julius Caesar was given this title as emperor. He also was called the Pontifex Maximus. He became the supreme, civil, political, and religious leader all rolled into one. Eventually, these Magians were driven out of Babylon as being too radical. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, and found a home in Pergamos, where they started this worship. And so it started with Nimrod here in the land of Shinar. They were driven out as being too radical, so they come to Pergamos. 
and Pergamos took them in. Now, the idol shape used for Asclepius was a snake. And this icon, if you will, is still used in the medical profession today. If you look at the symbol for a medical place, it's a pole with the snake curled up around it. That, that's where that comes from. Now, James Knox, uh, in his commentary uh, on this section here, he says, uh, and I quote, Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple were tame snakes. Now, in the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about harmless, because if I was touched in the dark by a snake, I'd probably hurt somebody, if not myself. Okay, anyway, back to the quote. Uh, in the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which they lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself and was believed to bring help and healing. You remember we talked about that earlier. So that's obviously, if they were sleeping on the uh, floor of the temple, they wanted these snakes to crawl across the top of them. Woo! Uh, okay, never mind that. Okay, now the third form of the uh, religious worship. And you remember the first was, of course, uh, Zeus, who was worshipped as the Savior, uh, which was symbolic of protection. Then there was Asclepios, uh, uh, Asclepius, worshipped as the healer, which was representing of, of the physician. Uh, the third aspect of that was Caesar, who was worshipped as Lord, and that was symbolic of their patriotism or political loyalty. Now, the Revelation's large amount of focus on Rome is not by mistake. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we'll see that there is a huge uh, target on the Roman Catholic Church. I, I'm not going to go into detail on that. We'll just get into it as we get into later. But there is a reason for it. So, uh, this worship of Caesar as Lord. The background for this started with emperor worship and the accompanying persecution of those who would not worship Caesar as Lord. And we, we talked about that. That letter to Smyrna uh, represented the fact that it was a real thing. If they did not worship him as Lord, then they were persecuted and, and uh, some of them were actually put to uh, death. Uh, Rome's Caesar worship dominated the entire Roman Empire at the time of uh, the writing of the book of Revelation. Now, the refusal to conform led to Christian persecution and killing. I just mentioned that. The idea behind all this was that the ruling Roman emperor was divine, or basically a god. To recognize this, again, once a year, every citizen had to appear before a magistrate to burn a pinch of incense to the deity of Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. After that, the citizen could worship whomever they wanted, but it had to be that connection to Caesar and to claim him to make that statement that Caesar is Lord and, and worship it thus. Now, why Caesar worship? Why Caesar worship? Uh, it was contained in many countries of diverse tongues, races, and traditions. The problem was how to mold these uh, uh, various masses into a unified work. Uh, there was no national religion that would work as one would offend another. I mean, you know, if you had worship focused on one nation and, you know, the other nation would say, well, what about us? So basically Caesar worship was the common bond that would work because to refuse the incense and the word Caesar is Lord 
was not an act of irreligion, but an act of political disloyalty. Rome's intentions were never to replace another's religion, but rather a test of political loyalty. So you see how they kind of slid that in there. It was political loyalty. It really didn't have anything to do with religion, but it became a religion. Now, one interesting fact is that of all the people in the entire empire, only the Jews were exempt from Caesar worship. Now, how strange is that? Only the Jews were exempt from Caesar worship. Uh, now, how Caesar worship was developed. Uh, there is what is called the Pax Romana. P-A-X-R-O-M-A-N-A. -A -A, the Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. Uh, the citizens of the provinces well knew that they owed Rome. Uh, of course, Rome come in and dominate the area. They owed them taxes. They owed them uh, this political loyalty, that sort of thing. So there's that. Uh, the impartial Roman justice took the place of tyrannical oppression. Roman roads spanned the world and were protected. So, uh, you know, there was that connection in the fact that, you know, that the, each, each of these little areas uh, would start with some tyrannical uh, lord over the area. You, occasionally you'd have a good one, but let's face it, you know, if you were in power, um, the the draw and the, and, and the the just the human nature alone would show that i mean you know the tyrannical nature would would just sooner or later come out that's just the way people are uh ej goodspeed in his book on this wrote that this was the pax romana the citizen under roman rule found himself in a position to conduct his business provide for his family send his letters and make his journeys in security thanks to the strong hand of rome now one basic fact according to William Barclay, and I quote, Caesar worship was not imposed on the people from above. It arose from the people. It might even be said that it arose in spite of efforts by the early emperors to stop it or at least curb it. So this Caesar worship, ironically and strangely, became something of the people to, uh, as a way of showing thanks, uh, a loyalty uh, for the protection of, like E.J. Goodspeed said, you know, that they could conduct their business and, and you know, provide for the family and, and all of that under the protection of Rome. So, so this was basically a form of, of thank, thanking the emperor for doing it. Uh, the program itself, it started with the deification of, of the Roman emperor. The goddess Roma stood for all the strong and benevolent power of the empire. Smyrna itself built the first temple to Roma in 195 B.C. If you remember, we talked about that. Uh, in, in that letter, and we covered it before. Uh, the deification then made room uh, for the man himself, and it began after the death of Julius Caesar. Uh, in 29 BC, Emperor Augustus gave Ephesus and Nicaea permission to build temples for joint worship of Roma and Caesar. So the, the program started with the actual deification of Rome itself. Um, and, and we talked about that in, in the parts where the people started this whole thing, if, if you will. And then, and then through the connection of the goddess Roma, uh, and all of that and the empire, then when, then when Julius passed away, uh, it actually made room for this deification of the emperor himself. Okay. So Roman citizens were then encouraged to worship, uh, the deification of this emperor. 
Uh, then there was permission given to erect these temples by non-Roman citizens, starting with Augustus. Uh, Pergamos and Nicomedia were allowed to build temples for the worship of Roma and Augustus. The worship of the visible soon overtook the worship of icons, and worship, uh, emperor worship alone became prominent. Senatorial permission to erect a temple to a living emperor was needed, but this soon became unnecessary. A priesthood then developed. Worship was then organized, and these officials were held in the highest of honor. And as you can see, it's leading the way to... You've already got the worship in place of a deity. And to have this worship of a deity, of course, there had to be somebody in charge of it. So that opens up this door to a priesthood. And as you just mentioned a little while ago, there's already a priesthood in place. These Baal worshipers that Nimrod started, that had got kicked out for being too radical, they're in place. So, of course, they're right there in position. Now, how Caesar worship was refined. Uh, again, it began with Augustus, who died in 14 AD, who allowed the worship of Julius Caesar, and it allowed non-citizens only to worship himself. They did not force this. They allowed it. So, basically opening the door. Uh, next, there's Tiberius, who ruled from 14 to 37 AD. Uh, he forbid temples to be built and priests to be appointed to worship himself, but he could not stop the worship of previous Caesars. And when I read that, I, it kind of led me to think, yeah, he could have. He certainly could have. But I, I think it was an under-the-table thing. They let it go on. And then I think what it was is he thought that as he died, then he would become worshipped. You kind of see it unfolding that way. Um, the next emperor, Caligula ruled from 37 to 41 AD. If you notice, these guys had short ruling spans because they were all crazy. But Anyway, Caligula was an epileptic man. He was a madman and a megalomaniac. A megalomaniac is one who suffers from delusions or great of greatness and uh, wealth. <clears throat> he obsesses with doing extravagant or grand things. <laughs> I think they all had a touch of that. Anyway, uh, he insisted on divine honors and worship of himself. So that turned it right then to the living emperor. Uh, he attempted to force the worship on the Jews uh, and planned to place his own image in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem, but died before he could carry out the plans. So that's the picture of overstepping your bounds right there. Wanted to put his own picture in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> okay. Uh, next was Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54 AD. Now, he completely reversed Caligula's orders. Uh, he specifically wrote a letter to Christians in Alexandria, giving them full liberty to worship as they chose, saying, and I quote, I deprecate the appointment of a high priest to me and the erection of temples, for I do not wish to be offensive to my contemporaries, and I hold that sacred fanes, which are temples or churches, and the like, have been by all ages attributed to the immortal gods as peculiar honors. So Claudius, in a way, kind of reined in the erratic uh, and put a little more common sense into it. But it didn't last long, because following him 
was the rule of Emperor Nero. Now, Nero uh, ruled from 54 to 68 AD. Uh, he did not insist on Caesar worship, uh, and he only persecuted the Christians as a scapegoat for the great fire that took place in Rome. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we get later on into the history of it. But Nero was, uh, oh, let's face it, he was a crazy man. He lost his mind. In a fact, many people believe that he actually set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for it. <laughs> All right? After Nero, uh, there were three emperors in the span of 18 months. There was Galba, Otto, and Vitellius. And the subject, of course, never came up. It just, they just didn't have enough time to get into it. Uh, after that was the two rules of Vespasian and Titus. Vespasian was from 69 to 79 AD, and Titus was from 79 to 81 AD. Both were considered wise rulers and made no insistence on Caesar worship. Uh, then there was the rule of the Emperor Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N. And he ruled from 81 to 96 AD. At this point, there was a complete and total change. Uh, in reference to him, William Barclay says in his commentary, and I quote, uh, He was a devil. <laughs> he was the worst of all things, a cold-blooded persecutor. With the exception of Caligula, he was the first emperor to take his divinity seriously and to demand Caesar worship. The difference was that Caligula was an insane devil. Domitian, however, was a sane devil, which is much more terrifying. End quote. So thus became, uh, began a campaign of persecution against all who would not worship, uh, and they called them atheists. Atheists, right there. Uh, he persecuted Jews and Christians alike. It didn't matter. Persecuted them all. Uh, when he and his uh, wife arrived at the theater, the crowd was encouraged to shout, All hail to our Lord and Lady. Uh, he proclaimed himself as a god and insisted that all proclamations and announcements must begin, Our Lord and God Domitian commands. He was addressed in speech or writing as Lord or God. Okay, so we see a little bit of the history of what's going on here in Pergamos. And in our next episode, we'll get into the actual message to the um, church itself. All right. Uh, that was quite a bit of history there. And I think as we go on, well, there's going to be more and more uh, with each one of these. And of course, it actually represents, uh, while all these uh, seven cities uh, were there at the same time, uh, I'll mention again that they do represent uh, letters that, that represent different eras of the modern church age. And when I say modern church age, I mean from when the church started all the way to today. Uh, so there, there's more and more information to be had with it. So uh, each of these sections will get a little bit longer and longer. I think we may have to start splitting some of them up. Uh, but anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed that history lesson there. I don't know if you're a big fan of history. I, I really like to uh, the history aspect of it. it kind of gives you a little background on, uh, you know, what was happening and, and it gives you a little insight on why these letters were written, uh, using the phraseology and some of the terms that were used and, and it directly related to what was happening 
in these cities. Okay. All right. So thank you for listening to that. And uh, we'll see you next time in the next episode in the actual letter itself. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a blessed day. Thank you.